so sitting or standing uh, outside on the at, uh, mountain ridge outside the restaurant Gochula this morning, looking up at the mountains, I'm reminded again um, just why I love being um, out in nature so much. One of the reasons is um, that in, in cities and towns, um, most everywhere we look, uh, we see things that are man-made. And most of the, uh, many of the things that we see around us um, very easily, if we're not um, very mindful, the wear can be objects of desire. So apart from the shop windows and the advertising hoardings in, in towns which are stimulating uh, desire, then pretty well wherever we see beauty, it can give rise to things like, oh, I, I wish I had one of those, or maybe one day I could have that if I work very hard, or if I'm very lucky, or if I win the lottery, or if the deities will help me. But the, one of the um, great values of being in the middle of the countryside or in the mountains is all around you you see breathtaking beauty, but there's not a single acquisitive thought in your mind. You never think, oh, that beautiful mountain, I wish I could have one of those. I wish I could buy, one day I'll have enough money to buy myself a forest or a mountain. And I think it's a very healthy experience for us to um, be in the midst um, of great beauty and experiencing pleasure and happiness on account of that beauty in the complete absence of any desire to grasp and to uh, make one's property. And it is a a very simple um, truth that we can separate in our minds in certain circumstances that uh, appreciation and enjoyment of things um, from the desire uh, to grasp onto and hold onto. Also, um, reflecting this morning, um, another Another aspect of, of, of that um, landscape and environment is how utterly indifferent it is to human beings. And I was reminded when I was a teenager, one of my favorite authors um, was an American writer called Kurt Vonnegut. And in one of his books, um, one of the, the heroes or the characters um, comes to the conclusion that a lot of the wars and the conflicts in the world are caused by people who uh, profess religions and which lead them to understand that God is on their side. So um, this is particularly um, true in, in Europe. Uh, in the First World War, you see the, uh, the British side in the trenches would be fighting for God and the King and the Germans would be fighting for God and the Kaiser. Everyone thought God was on their side. And so, um, in this book, 
the hero establishes a new church, and it's called the Church of God, the Utterly Indifferent. And the idea is that some world peace would be um, developed um, when everybody um, believed that the, uh, the holy uh, principle, God or whatever, couldn't care less. Um, it doesn't take people's sides in wars or in any kind of competition. And I think that, um, that again, I think it's a healthy, um, very healthy for us as human beings to be in situations um, where we're not um, looking for assistance and aid and expecting it um, from, uh, to be living in a situation where it's indifferent to us. And to, be, to survive in nature, you have to have respect for nature and you have to study, you have to understand. If you're out in the mountains alone, it's not, you have to know um, how to look after yourself, what kind of clothing you need, uh, how to orient yourself, uh, how to live off the, uh, off the land if it should come to that. There are so many do's and don'ts, um, not as a sort of rules of morality imposed upon you from from outside or by some deity, but because with nature being like this and a human body um, being like this, if the human body is to survive in those kinds of conditions, it must adapt itself appropriately. And this is um, very much uh, a Buddhist understanding of, of life in general, that uh, we, we grow and flourish as human beings to the extent in which we, we study, we understand uh, the way things are and we adapt ourselves appropriately. So in, um, as human beings we often tend to be uh, rather conceited and arrogant I think and overestimate the extent to which we are uh, masters of the world we live in and we are um, able to uh, control and manipulate things. If we look very closely, um, our efforts at manipulation and control are always very tightly constrained uh, within the boundaries given us by nature. Um, and a very simple example, um, let's say you wanted for some reason to hold your breath. Now as an act of will, you can do that, can't you? You can make a decision, I'm going to hold my breath. Um, and you hold your breath, but there's, after a few, um, some seconds, or maybe a minute or two, even though the will to hold your breath might be, uh, might be there, you might be underwater for instance, um, there comes a point where nature won't allow you to hold your breath anymore. And that's, that's um, I think, a paradigm or, or a, you know, a leading example of um, many situations in life where because we can exert a certain amount of control, um, we become intoxicated by that and we give it far more importance um, than it deserves. And we forget the fact that we can only manipulate things because nature allows us to um, and we can only manipulate things within the uh, boundaries or the restraint, constraints that nature provides us with. So, um, I've been 
speaking some for some time now, both both, both here and on my visit to Bhutan and, and in Thailand generally on the, uh, the particular nature of, of uh, the Buddhist teachings um, and proposing the the idea that it is essentially um, a an education system rather than a belief system. It has um, significant um, differences from the great faiths that grew up in the Middle East. And that um, we sh I, I don't think that in the, the name, in the laudable name of um, harmony and tolerance, that we should overlook the unique features of Buddhism. Uh, for instance, I, I was reading um, uh, the other day that the, the Pope had um, announced a, uh, an interfaith meeting in, uh, in Italy, I, I suppose, in which uh, it was, uh, the idea was to face up to religious intolerance and, and um, misunderstandings and try to find some common ground. And the common ground in, in, uh, for the Pope and for, for many people throughout the world is basically uh, we all believe in God and we just um, talk about it in different ways. And that, that puts Buddhists in a, in a very difficult position because we don't want to be the, the wet blankets and, uh, and the people are uh, the party pooper and the one that doesn't uh, support these um, efforts to create world harmony. But at the same time, you know, as a Buddhist monk myself, I, I certainly don't believe um, that we all believe in the same God and that there's one ruling deity that's called different things by different people. Um, so, in the very, you know, I think in the, the most polite and friendly way, um, the, uh, the Buddhist view here, and I'm speaking on behalf of Buddhism, perhaps um, um, if that's permitted to me to do so, and I would say that uh, most of the interface um, initiatives are based upon the idea that we can only really be friends when uh, we agree that we're all talking about the same thing. Whereas uh, my, my understanding is that we can have completely different ideas about some things and we can still respect each other. Why, why can't we be friends just because we don't see eye to eye on, 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 certain, on certain things? So to fully uh, gain the benefit of, of Buddhist teachings um, and with uh, avoiding the trap of um, chauvinism, saying that we're, we're better than superior to other religions, um, I think it is very worthwhile uh, to really uh, look at the, those features that, um, that we find in Buddhism that are not found in other religions and, and which um, are the basis for our own confidence and, and satisfaction. This is the, uh, the religion that uh, I've chosen and makes me, uh, pleases me the most. And Buddhism is an education um, system and in, in the text, one of the ways of referring to uh, a, a fully enlightened being um, is called an aseka pukala, which means, um, we might say, the graduate. He's a graduate. 
is someone who no longer needs to study or to learn. So the, uh, the idea that we can get from that, of course, is that um, short of a fully enlightened being, everybody is, a, um, is still learning. And the Buddhist approach to life is that we are learning and that we grow and that we fulfill ourselves as human beings most essentially through making use of this wonderful ability we have to uh, transform ourselves, to take responsibility for our lives. That we see um, when we look very closely, and this is not a, an article of faith, I think we can see very clearly that um, we do have within us this capacity to change in quite radical and, and fundamental ways. Um, at the same time, uh, recognizing that that change, which um, in the long term may well be a radical change, is, is one that um, often happens in a very slow, gradual way. Uh, I believe, in fact, it's um, uh, a Tibetan saying, I could be mistaken, but referring to the way one um, approaches Buddhist practice and teaching is, is the idea of um, hurrying slowly. And there's, um, there's a nice little story from, uh, I'm not sure where, about uh, a man at the countryside taking a cartload of, of coconuts into the market um, in the town for the first time and not too sure of the best road to take into town and um, asking a young boy by the road and he said, look, he's worried that he's going to get too late to sell his coconuts. So he asked the young lad, um, how long taking this road here, how long will it take to get to the market? And the boy said, well, if you hurry, it'll take you an hour, and if you go slowly, it'll be about half an hour. And, and the man thought, oh, what an impertinent young boy. He's got, got angry. And so set off as fast as he could down, down the road. And of course, the road was very pitted and rutted, and a, a number of potholes in the road. And he got halfway down the road, and the, uh, the cart overturned. And so he had to pick up all the coconuts and put them back on the, on the uh, wagon. And by the time he got into the market, it was an hour had passed. Um, whereas other carts which knew the nature of the road had, been done, had gone a lot uh, more slowly and carefully and got there in half an hour. So at, uh, when you hear that you know, the first time, if you hurry, it'll take an hour and if you if you, if you go um, more slowly, it'll take half an hour, it doesn't make sense. Um, but in real life, yeah, it does. Um, and in Buddhism, we talk about the middle way. Um, but uh, the middle way is not always the, you know, the straightest way. Or you know, if you're going to, um, uh, from Tupu to Punaka, you know, I say, which is the, the straightest route or the best route? And, and you're told, and you get on that road, and the road is winding all the time. It's, I thought this was the fastest way. Yeah, but sometimes the fastest way it does wind a lot, but uh, it's still um, the most effective and efficient 
a way to get to your destination. So, uh, as Buddhists were saying that um, we have, if we have a faith in Buddhism, um, it's not a faith in external deities so much as a faith um, in our own capacity for um, transformation and our own capacity for enlightenment. And, and the Buddha made it very clear uh, from the very beginning of his dispensation that this um, capacity, uh, this potential for enlightenment is shared by both men and women. And um, with regards to this faith, we can begin with um, certain inference to give us some confidence in this principle. And to do that, we, we can look at our life and ask ourselves, um, can we identify any uh, bad habit or any um, really uh, foolish activity that we indulged in in the past, which today uh, we are free of? which we've, let, perhaps in the past, we used to smoke cigarettes or, do, or um, um, be abusive of people around us, or whatever it might be. And then we see, yes, these days, um, that's no longer a part of my life, or it's much less a part of my life than it was. And similarly, can we see any good, virtuous quality in ourselves these days that was absent a few years ago? Now I think in both cases, almost I would think everybody would be able to say, yes, I, I can see that within myself. And the next step, and this is admittedly logic rather than you know, uh, intuitive insight, but the, the logical step is, well, if I, can, if I could abandon that particular bad habit, then why can I not abandon all the other bad habits which are still present in my mind. If I can develop, I have developed this particular virtuous quality, then why can't I um, develop all the other virtuous qualities? So the Buddha is saying that um, change, change takes place according to causes and conditions. And if we study nature of causes, conditions, and apply ourselves intelligently, we can um, realize the, uh, or we can uh, abandon the unwholesome, develop the wholesome, and purify our minds. And indeed, um, on one occasion, the Lord Buddha said to the monks um, that uh, the, the Lord Buddha, the Tathagata, is teaching you to abandon all that is unwholesome and develop all that is wholesome is because it is something you can do. If you couldn't do it, I wouldn't teach it. Now, I've, I've always found this a very, uh, very powerful statement from the Buddha. So, um, let me just say a few more words about faith in, in the Buddhist tradition, at least in the tradition in which I've trained. Um, faith is um, not denigrated in, in, in Buddhism. In fact, it's considered one of the key uh, spiritual faculties. So it is referred to as a power or a faculty. Um, but 
in all of the uh, Pali texts in which faith is mentioned, it is always accompanied. It usually appears in different kinds of lists of, of virtues and, and um, tools to be used on the path. And it's always accompanied by wisdom. So wherever the word satara faith appears, it's always the word banya or wisdom. And the Buddha taught us that these two um, qualities have to be balanced. Um, so faith without wisdom um, very easily becomes fanaticism or superstition. Um, and similarly, uh, intelligence, the critical faculty, without faith um, can um, very easily uh, turn into this sort of um, cynical, critical um, ability to see the fault of everything and the value of nothing. So faith is what simplifies and clarifies and focuses the mind. Um, I don't know in, in Bhutan um, whether uh, you've ever watched um, American TV series, I, I don't know where it's even going, it's called Star Trek, and, and one of the um, key uh, characters is this man with pointy ears, Mr. Spock, and um, he doesn't have emotions. He's, a, he's always very logical, and so he's a foil for the captain who's very passionate and uh, human. And then there's this idea that, you know, um, if you don't have any emotions, um, then you would be extremely effective um, in your career. But um, there are many people, and not many, but there are a number of people uh, who through uh, car accidents or some uh, trauma um, have uh, suffered damage to their brains and they um, uh, become completely emotionless Mr. Spock characters, they don't have emotions anymore. So it's, a very, it's very interesting to observe how they function in the world. And in fact, surprisingly, they become, um, sadly, very dysfunctional. Uh, for instance, uh, it, going to the supermarket uh, is a major expedition uh, because when they have to choose between a number of brands which are almost you know, essentially the same thing and their only criteria is the logic of which brand is better than the other one, um, they just find it almost impossible to make decisions. So um, faith is, um, is important here. It's, uh, you know, when you've weighed up a certain amount of evidence, you've spent a sufficient amount of time then you have to go for it. You have to make your choice. Um, and that's, that's the role of, of faith. Um, it, it clarifies things and enables you to make choices. But it has to be um, tempered by, balanced by this critical uh, f um, faculty and questioning. And, and the Buddha referred to his teachings as Ehipasika, um, which means come and see, or in other words, these are teachings that challenge you to put them to the test. They're not teachings that must be accepted and believed in, um, because once you have that kind of attitude that it's sinful not to believe in holy teachings, and that if you don't understand and you can't make any sense, that's your that's your problem. Um, that's not, that's alien 
to the Buddhist tradition. And uh, many cases, uh, the Buddha praised um, people who doubted. The um, most famous occasion uh, was when he visited a, a group of people called the Kalama people. The Kalama people put, lived in an area probably somewhere near present-day Delhi. And they were very well known for being very intelligent, thoughtful people. And uh, um, some of the Kalama people said to the Buddha, um, there's so many spiritual teachers these days, and so many teachings, and they all sound so plausible, and the teachers are all so articulate and charismatic, and, you know, wh how do we make a decision? We just don't know, you know who to believe anymore. And, and um, you know, how to, how to make any kind of decision about which teachings to follow. Um, and the Buddha said, very good, um, very good. That's, uh, you, are, you are doubting about something which is deserving of doubt. So this is a clear case where the Buddha recognizes that doubt um, is often a sign of intelligence. And, and communicate, you know this uh, often when uh, academics um, write papers and they use this very um, difficult language, all these very difficult words, and it's very easy for a non-academic to become intimidated um, and assume that because um, you can't make head or tail of it, it's because it's too profound. Um, but very often, um, it's because it's very poorly expressed. Um, and if you were to um, rephrase it in uh, what they said in uh, ordinary everyday language, um, then you could see the flaws in the arguments, or even the strengths of the argument, much uh, much more uh, clearly. But this idea that uh, profundity is identical with um, complexity, I think, is a is a very uh, mistaken idea. And and one characteristic of all the great teachers is that they are able to present difficult ideas. Um, in a clear, accessible way. Um, Albert Einstein, who count as a great teacher in his own right, he was sense that it's important to make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. So it's not a matter of dumbing down or uh, glossing over the more difficult parts of the subject, but in those areas which can be simplified, to be simple as possible, not to be showing off um, your language, or the books you've read, or the people that you know, and the um, and the long multi-syllable words that you've memorized. But your your goal is communication. And the Buddha was, uh, you know, the great communicator, and all the great spiritual teachers have been communicators, I believe, um, in that way. So we're um, we're studying these um, teachings in faith. Uh, is tempered by um, the willingness uh, to question, to question in a very humble and respectful manner, uh, but not to feel that that is, is wrong. And it's very good for monks and for teachers to be challenged. I, I like it uh, myself. I don't know about maybe other monks, but I, I like it when people uh, say, no, I don't agree, or that doesn't make sense to me. Because if you're part of a tradition, and a tradition that goes back a long, long way, as I, that I am, then 
you know, you absorb things and you take things for granted and, and they make sense to you to the extent that sometimes you don't ever stop and, and say, but yes, but what's, what's that really about? Because everybody else has the same uh, standard as you do. But then when you meet someone from outside of your group or from a different religious or a different religion or a different religious tradition and they say, this teaching, I don't quite understand that. Could you clarify that? And then suddenly maybe you realize, yeah, that, that's true. That isn't quite so clear as I thought it was. So religious tradition, and uh, Buddhist tradition, um, uh, is one founded on timeless truths. But um, the exposition of those truths, the communication of those truths, uh, is not timeless. And it needs to adapt to changing social conditions and cultural conditions. Um, and it, we, we have to accept if the education system is uh, promoting uh, critical thinking skills, um, we can't expect there to be no-go areas. We can't expect uh, our younger generation to be using these skills um, uh, only in those areas that we're comfortable with. When they start asking questions about why do we do this and why do we bow to Buddhism and why do we chant and why, why, what's the purpose of this ritual and that ritual, we must be able to um, explain. Um, and if we can't explain, if we have to say, well, we just do it because we've always done it that way, then uh, I think we, we're, you know, we're in a dangerous situation. So um, I believe it's really um, inherent, intrinsic in, in a living uh, tradition, and particularly in our Buddhist tradition, that we're constantly re-evaluating, we're looking again and again at the way that we do things, and the way, that, particularly in the way that we communicate these teachings, um, and the way that we can um, uplift and inspire people to carry on this wonderful tradition into the future, um, irrespective of what um, changes may go on in the um, external world. So the Buddhist teaching is, you know, is based upon the recognition and the study of nature, and which is essentially the study of change. And uh, the, what are the causes and conditions that underlie change, both positive change and progress, and negative change and, and decline. It's only when we really can grasp those underlying principles of progress and decline, both individually in our private life and in our lives as families and communities, as the society, as a culture, um, that we can be confident that we can arrest or um, reduce the, 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 uh, the factors um, producing decline, and we can promote those factors um, creating um, progress. So the, the, the faith that um, is um, questioned and which welcomes um, challenge and sees it, it's, it's a healthy thing. It's like if you're um, having a very vigorous massage. You know, if you're, if you're being massaged, and, um, then you don't feel anything. And then suddenly there's a place where you've been managed and it actually hurts. You say, yeah, that's the point. That's the place. Yes, massage there. You see, you actually want it to be massaged at the bit that hurts. You know, you, 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 it's not so useful to be massaged on all the, all the bits that don't hurt because that's not where the problem is. So there's always going to be a certain amount of, of friction when, uh, when there's challenge, 
But that's how something grows and, and, and develops, I think. Now, um, so what is the object of faith in Buddhism? This is not historical religion. Some religions rise and fall on whether or not you're willing to believe that certain things happened um, many, a couple of two thousand years ago. And in Buddhism, there is a key event, at least in the Theravada narrative, and the the um, enlightenment of the Buddha. Now, in the Theravada tradition. One, one area in which it differs somewhat is of its vision of understanding of Buddhahood and the nature of the Buddha. So I'm giving a, a Theravada view here. The Theravada view is that um, we believe that uh, the prince, Siddhartha, was a very special human being in that he had uh, over a course of many, many lifetimes, millions of lifetimes, been gradually accumulating all the spiritual perfections or parami. And the last lifetime was the, the culmination of this uh, training and education over such an uh, unimaginably long period of time. But uh, even though um, he had in uh, many lifetimes, in many forms, in many realms, been accumulating these perfections, his last life was as a human being. And his enlightenment took place um, in a human birth. And so the enlightenment of the Buddha was the enlightenment of a human being, albeit a very special human being, but he was a human being at that time. And so the, the lesson or the, the, the principle that we derive from this um, is that at the moment of his enlightenment the Buddha proved, demonstrated that the, the potential for enlightenment so he was enlightened as a human being but through that enlightenment he, um, he, he revealed the human capacity for enlightenment. And so, this is uh, our faith as Buddhists. We believe that the Buddha was enlightened, and that we can't prove that, can we? But we believe the Buddha was enlightened, and that through his enlightenment, he uh, proved the human capacity for enlightenment. He was, as it were, a representative of the human race. And the next and crucial step for all of us is that if we have that confidence and belief in the inherent human capacity for enlightenment, then we have to have that inherent, uh, that uh, firm belief in our own inherent capacity for enlightenment. So we say, well, that's a faith, but this is the uh, come and see teaching, the put it to the test teaching. And so if we are sincere in our faith, we have to put that faith to the test. Now, most objects of faith, you can't put them to the test. Like I would say with most things, do you, uh, do you believe that um, this happened or that happened as it's portrayed in holy books? You either believe it or you don't. If you believe it, you can be, be a member of that religion. If you don't, you can't. But if our a guiding principle of faith as a Buddhist is our capacity for enlightenment 
which um, means our, our capacity to abandon the unwholesome, to develop the wholesome, and to purify our minds, then we need to put that to the test and make efforts in our lives to make use of various um, spiritual teachings, techniques that Buddha give us to try to abandon all that is unwholesome in our lives, to try to cultivate and nourish all that is wholesome uh, and to purify the mind. And um, so in our daily life, wherever we may be, at home, at work, um, in a monastery or out in the nature, we, we can always be doing this work. We can always be making the effort to protect our mind against the unwholesome that has not yet arisen, to reduce, eliminate the unwholesome that has arisen, to bring into our minds all the wholesome qualities not yet arisen, and to systematically um, and conscientiously uh, cultivate and further develop all the wholesome that has developed. And so we can be proving um, moment by moment, day by day, the article of our, the, the object of our faith, which is this capacity uh, for change. And the change takes place essentially through our effort. And the Buddha said, this is a, uh, you've probably heard the teaching Theravada, but there's another phrase the Buddha used to refer to his teaching. He says, this is Viryavada, which means it's a teaching of effort. It means that effort is meaningful. Um, effort has results and consequences and that we take our stand on effort and we seek to be um, self-reliant um, more and more um, and to take responsibility uh, more, more and more. Uh, and I was, um, yesterday I, I, I was talking, um, we had some discussion and I was giving some reflections on, on prayer and um, and I, I mentioned that my own personality is, is one which, you know, I've always um, tried to be as independent um, as, as I could, at least you know, emotionally, spiritually independent. And um, as an as an adolescent, I would never um, take money from my parents. And I, I just liked the feeling um, of that the money I had in my pocket when I go out with my friends was money that I'd earned myself. And I think this is a very common feeling, isn't it? If you, um, if you um, achieve something through your own efforts, there's a, a far better feeling than if it's provided for you. You know, if you, uh, if any of you have built your own house, for instance, you know, it's a wonderful feeling to to be able to create a, a space. Uh, for yourself and your family that you that you um, made through your own efforts, through your own uh, sweat and hard work. And um, well, we could also talk about pilgrimage. You know, there are holy sites in, in almost all religions, and a pilgrimage is a common theme in, in the religious history of mankind. But, uh, but the most important, uh, the most important parts of pilgrimage is not actually arriving at the pilgrimage spot, at the holy site, it's all the difficulties and the struggles um, of getting there. So, you know, if you were going on a, on a pilgrimage uh, to a holy site or a holy mountain or a holy lake uh, or to pay respects to holy relics or whatever, 
Um, and let's say um, you had the choice of, of walking or going in the traditional style or maybe someone giving you a lift in a helicopter to within a hundred meters of the holy site. Certainly going in the helicopter would be much more uh, comfortable and uh, time efficient and uh, uh, pleasant in many ways. But I think that uh, very few uh, people with any kind of religious sensibility would prefer uh, to go by helicopter because of the whole point um, is the, the struggle and the difficulties. And I think that there are, I, I certainly believe um, that there are um, many uh, beneficent um, deities and um, powerful figures in other realms which may um, uh, be able to provide some support um, in, our, in our efforts in life. But the question is more to what extent do we draw upon that support. I uh, sometimes uh, speaking with people in Thailand who um, who, who um, bow to deities or make uh, requests for, for this and for that kind of worldly success. And uh, I, I, I said, you know, is this ethical? I said, what you're basically doing is you're requesting powerful beings in other realms to assist you um, to have an unfair advantage over other people. Because if there are a number of different people who all want the same thing, only one person can get that thing, and you're getting help from a deity, is that fair if the other people aren't? And um, also, if uh, a deity, let's just say for the sake of argument, has the power to provide that kind of extra boost, um, but he's only going to give it to somebody uh, who makes offerings to him, isn't that what we call corruption? You know? Aren't you supporting a corrupt system? You're corrupting deities only to help people who give them offerings. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's you know, food for thought in this whole kind of uh, view. And uh, I, you know, as I say, I think this is a wonderful feeling when it's not that, you know, I'm a self-made man or anyone. I, don't, I think that's um, a very foolish way because um, together with um, and complementing this um, love of taking responsibility and, and working things out for yourself and, and putting in the effort yourself, um, which I feel is very ennobling, this is balanced by, tempered by, the cultivation of gratitude and the recognition of all that is given to us. Now, you, you know, uh, I speak to school children and I say, you may think you're very smart, you know, you're very intelligent and uh, you don't need anybody, but um, when you think about things in a very smart way, what is the tool that you're using um, for analysis and for coming up with new ideas? It's language, isn't it? And were you born with language? Did you make that up yourself? No, you learned it from your parents. And if, you know, we can, uh, people can make a go in the world without, um, you know, without sight, without um, hearing. Um, people with various disabilities and difficulties can overcome those difficulties um, um, under certain circumstances. But someone who has, la ha has no language um, can't function at all. And so one of the, the greatest gifts um, that we have the gift of language, and it's our parents who teach us that.
um, uh, quite apart from the fact that um, if our parents didn't care for us and look after us when we were small, uh, we wouldn't be here anyway, we'd be dead by now. Um, we differ from uh, most animals. Um, animals, generally their life is uh, an instinctive one, and perhaps within a few hours or a few days, they've learned everything they need for the rest of their life. They don't need their parents anymore. But human beings, we're, we're rather weak uh, in many ways. Our faculties, our sight, our hearing, our sense of smell, uh, our physical dexterity is, is not particularly impressive. Um, and we have to learn. And this is why I was saying just now that learning and the capacity to learn is, is most essential, our most essential human quality. And um, is there anything, you know, that good and, and, and um, wonderful in our lives that, that uh, we don't owe a debt of gratitude to somebody or other? Or, you know, what's our debt of gratitude to worms, earthworms? Yeah, huge, absolutely huge. Because if earthworms weren't eating the soil and digesting the soil, we wouldn't be able to grow any crops. Uh, we'd all go hungry and die. Our debt of gratitude to bees, pollinating flowers. Um, you know, the, when we start to open up and, and not trying to sort of develop some kind of uh, new age emotion about this, but just recognizing the fact that to what extent we are indebted to teachers and parents um, and friends and even the animal world and the natural world. And so um, at the same time, as we're making this effort to take more and more responsibility for ourselves and finding ways of understanding nature and to be working with the nature of things and to be strengthening and developing our minds, then um, uh, to the extent that we are consciously aware of the gratitude of our gratitude to others, then. I think we, 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 we can be on the right path. Now, um, in one of his first discourses, the, uh, the Buddha um, summarized his teachings. Um, his, this was a t talk he gave to fully enlightened arahants. So it wasn't a, a teaching of things that they needed to learn. So they'd already gradu graduated. But he wanted to summarize a sort of bullet point um, uh, discourse so that these arahants going off in all the different parts of India would be able to teach something which um, is more or less uh, harmonious. So the Buddha said, what is the goal of Buddhist practice? It's Nibbana, it's, it's complete and utter liberation from suffering and its causes and the, the maximization of, of uh, all the virtuous qualities, wisdom, compassion, purity. He said, what is the primary, the number one engine or the, the causal condition for the realization of Nibbana. Now, now many people might think, well, um, uh, inner peace or vipassana or, or whatever, but the, the virtue that the Buddha chose in this seminal discourse was patient endurance. And um, a, a wonderful uh, gloss on this given by, by one of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedha, he said, what, what is this kanti, or what we call patient endurance? He said, it is peaceful coexistence with the unpleasant. 
So, so when we talk about being patient or enduring, um, then you know we have this idea of gritting, gritting our teeth. You know, just be patient, just stay with it. But this is a peaceful coexistence with it. The recognition of the um, the the fact that in our life, no matter how privileged we might be, how wealthy we might be, how much we can manipulate conditions around us, we're always going to have to deal with the unpleasant on one level or another. Um, and it is the primary um, uh, condition for all the development of all the other spiritual virtues. When I first went to Thailand in late the 70s, conditions were, were pretty um, ascetic. And uh, my teacher, uh, Ajahn Chah, was still um, quite healthy, reasonably healthy in those days. And he would give very long discourses, um, maybe three hours uh, at a time. And uh, you know, the the hall was rather kind of stuffy, um, and sort of it's a concrete. It wasn't very beautiful. The the hall we sit in those days. It was like a concrete box and windows, small windows with. Uh, with bars on them, and um, one of my friends says it's the Mexican prison school of architecture, and and we just sit on these uh, concrete floors without any kind of mats, and there there's a great deal of protocol and etiquette um, involved in in monastic training in northeast Thailand, and. Uh, uh, there's a there's only a certain posture you're allowed to sit in. You can't sit. It's very impolite to sit cross-legged in front of a teacher in Thailand. You have this. I don't know if anyone's seen the way the Thai people sit. The polite posture. It's kind of side saddle kind of posture. And if you've never sat in it before, it feels really um, unbalanced and awkward. But that's the only way you're allowed to sit. So you're sitting in this heat, and you start to sweat, and the mosquitoes are coming, and you're sitting on this hard concrete floor for two and three hours um, with um, having to sit in this way that you've never sat before and uh, you very soon realize you know that uh, you're only going to survive if you can be really patient with this not fight it and and you see when you the um, one of the um, disadvantages of a, a good education is that um, your ability to rationalize desires is uh, very sophisticated. Um, so uh, um, myself and my friends from around the world, and most of us middle class, reasonably well educated, um, and our Thai colleagues, mostly from rice farming backgrounds. And so it's very, you know, we suffer similarly, but um, uh, the Westerners would be the ones that always had, uh, you know, all these good reasons why we shouldn't be doing it like this. It would be much better if we did it like that, for this reason, that reason. It's so reasonable, you know. <laughs> and uh, but then we realised actually that our Thai friends uh, were suffering a lot less because they didn't get into all this kind of realm of uh, how things could be better than they are. Well, they were like this, and it was our our job as young monks to put up with it. And in fact, I, I believe uh, my memory tells me that. The first Thai word I can remember learning, um, I listened to these long discourses and asked this American monk, I said, can you give me some kind of summer, what is this word, I keep hearing this word, otton, otton, otton all the time, what does that mean? And so that means patient endurance, I realized that's what our, my teacher was, was stressing again and again. 
um, it's noticeable, isn't it, these days that patient endurance and patience is not a virtue that we uphold very much. In fact, the, in many ways, progress is seen as the ability to live your life without the need for patience. You know, instant access, um, instant gratification is a sign of, of progress. So if you, you know, you see these days if, if people have had uh, uh, high-speed Wi-Fi internet access and then for some reason they go somewhere and they have to use a dial-up you know, and they have to wait for like two seconds before the screen comes up and they're always like tapping their fingers and, oh dear, this is so slow, you know. Um, and how, how standards uh, change in that way. And I think it's in, important in, in spiritual training, any kind of education, they're actually saying, no, this is actually very good. And just being willing to be peaceful with something which is not immediately gratifying. Um, it's an essential element of a mature mind. We can only be comfortable with things that we enjoy or are fun and immediately give us that kind of hit, then we're, we're shutting ourselves away from whole areas of life which demand that kind of application, willingness to, to persevere and to bear with a certain amount of discomfort. And this isn't a kind of no pain, no gain teaching, but it, it's saying that, that that is a certain element of life which we have to be able to open up to and to and to deal with and to accept. So, um, the, the Buddhist teaching founded upon, uh, the transformational teaching founded upon uh, patience, um, but another uh, key te uh, teaching of virtue of course is, is mindfulness and the ability to be present to our experience. Um, what is really shocking, um, if we turn the light within, is to see what a mess our minds are, and how totally out of control they are. And, and we have, we, I think we, we need for a certain modicum of self-respect to, to consider ourselves as being very, uh, you know, basically rational beings. Um, and when you look at your mind um, directly, then you see, wow, there's so much kind of, that's irrational and contradictory um, and the, you know, pointless and harmful, and this is going on, and, and I've never really uh, noticed that before, never, never really um, observed it before. So this uh, mindfulness is... Um, the the um, effort to wake up to what's really going on in our lives, not what we think it is, what we'd like it to be, or the images and the projections, but just right down to what's actually going on right now. And what we're most, what's most um, crucial here is the interest is. Um, happiness, pleasure, and pain, or suffering. Because um, even though we have the most uh, wise um, social system and cultural system, economic system, and, and you know, this gross national happiness is surely you know, the most intelligent um, macro idea you know, surrounding the world these days. But at the same time, 
we, uh, we have to humbly acknowledge that our ideas and understanding of the nature of happiness and the nature of suffering is still very superficial um, and that um, once the external supportive conditions are in place the internal work has to be done as well and this observation now you can uh, come, keep coming back to, to this awareness of right now how do you feel how do you feel right now you know just for uh, you can do this as a daily exercise with your watch you know throughout every 15 minutes throughout the day just you know, look at your watch and say how do I feel right now um, this is a mindfulness exercise and um, you can start to cut through you know a lot of received ideas that, that we absorb without recognizing them I I was speaking to, to someone last evening, you know, and they said, oh, you know, the, the society now has become so materialistic. And, and I said, well, actually, uh, I think it's um, not materialistic enough. And, and the person I was speaking to was quite shocked. We never thought a monk would say such a thing, you know, that the society is not materialistic enough. I said, no, I think society is not very materialistic. For instance, let's say a wealthy woman, uh, lots of um, disposable income, um, going to buy a handbag. You know? Now, if you were a materialist, you would say, what do I need this handbag for? What am I going to carry around in this handbag? What is the sturdiest material that this handbag can make? The most reasonable color and the most, uh, you know, aesthetically pleasing. And then you would find the sort of optimum handbag and buy it, irrespective of price. The cheaper, the better. But in fact, you know, wealthy women spend huge sums of money buying bags which are materially not particularly special, but because they have the name of a brand on it. Um, they consider that's worth the extra expense. Now, I, I think that if you're paying a huge extra sum of money um, merely for um, the brand name, you're not a materialist. Uh, you're not um, expecting some kind of material bonus there. You want to be um, part of that uh, elite group of people that have enough money to have that kind of handbag. And, and one of the uh, comments about like sensual pleasures and, and the world of consumer goods is that if you look very clearly, it's not just um, that you have that thing and that pleasure, but it's that large numbers of people don't have it. So that's the, that's the, um, the, the, the hook there. You know? If everybody was to have it, you know, would it be so wonderful? If everybody you know, had a, the same kind of brand name handbag, would it be so interesting anymore? And um, one interesting study they've done in, uh, in England, I think, was they, they gave people uh, uh, in offices this question. Let's say you had a choice that the, the company was to raise your wages. Let's say, I can't remember the figures now, let's just say for the sake of argument, the, the company's going to raise your wage by 50 pounds a week and it's going to raise the wage of everybody else in the office by 100 pounds a week that's the first choice second choice is the company will 
raise your wage by 30 pounds a week and everybody else's by 20 pounds a week. Which would you choose? And many people, majority of people, choose the second option, which from mainstream economics doesn't make sense because you're making, you're, you know, instead of accepting 50 pounds, you're only expecting 30 pounds, 20 pounds less than you might make. But the, but the feeling that you're only making 50 pounds more and everybody else is 100 pounds more is just so um, unbearable that people would like to just take the 30 pounds instead. And so, um, you know, if we were really as, you know, materialistic and say, we're not. We were a mass of, of contradictions and we often act in very irrational ways. Um, and some of those, uh, that irrationality is um, just um, a function of the way the brain works. Um, but um, a lot of it is, is just because we haven't really seen the extent to which um, we we're not really awake and aware to what's going on within us sufficiently um, to make wise decisions. So this is um, the Buddhist training, as I said, not one of acceptance of dogmas, but using the Buddhist teachings as tools uh, to create more um, understanding and direct awareness of what's going on, particularly what truly makes us happy, what truly makes us sad. And, um, and we can, uh, if you practice um, present moment mindfulness, then um, you can find happiness in the most unexpected places. You can see that it's the quality of mind that you bring to activities which counts uh, almost more than anything else um, in in deciding the quality of your life because generally uh, we uh, prioritize our activities in the sense that we feel certain things are just like things we have to do every day and we just get them over and done with as quickly as possible so we can go on to the more important things and and so this is why often we just feel so rushed all the time because why do I going to do this so I can do that I do that I can do this or or else um, try and do two or three things at once, you give it a fancy title like multitasking, and in fact you're just uh, confusing yourself and making yourself more uh, run down and stressed out than you need to. Um, and so the Buddha is saying, giving respect and interest um, to every single action in your life. So. Um, in a sort of more zen idiom, you say, when you're having a shower, just have a shower. You know, experience what it is to have a shower. Um, when you're brushing your teeth, what where's your mind usually when you're brushing your teeth? Is it with what you're doing in the present moment or is it off somewhere else? Um, when you're walking up and down stairs, standing in the lift, all these short periods of time which we just write off as sort of in-between times in our life. Um, you can reclaim those, recycle them, um, and use those periods of time, not just to be going over what happened just now, or going over again and again what's going to happen, or you think is going to happen a bit later on. Just take a few breaths and just be, be here now, as they used to say, just be right here. And you can find that um, chores and things which are so kind of boring and, and uh, um, uh, you know, um, 
um, that used to fill you with aversion, things like cleaning jobs and, and washing the dishes and washing clothes and, and doing mundane jobs. If you give a, bring a certain quality of interest and awareness to, to doing that in the best way you can, with a, that sense of respect for whatever is your present occupation, you, you bring a, a new quality to your life. And that starts to spread into other areas and, and human relationships, communication. Now, how few people know how to listen to other, other people? You know, have you had that? I'm sure, you know, you're speaking to someone and you just get this sense of a little bit of tension in the other person and you realize they're just waiting for you to stop so that they can say what they want to say. You know, or you, you open your heart to someone and you tell them what it's terrible. And, and instead of simply you get, yeah, something like that happened to me once. And then they're they off into their own uh, autobiography again. And it's usually chapters of the autobiography you've heard many times before. Um, and you all know almost by heart. And so the ability to listen, and truly listen to, to both the content of what someone's saying and the feelings behind it. So a, a life skill that very few people apply themselves to, unfortunately. And this is part of, of um, Dhamma, Dhamma practice. Um, so if you think the Dhamma practice means going off into a cave or a monastery and many hours a day with your eyes closed and developing medita meditative skills and visions and all this kind of thing, well, there's, there's certainly um, um, spending time uh, alone and learning to enjoy being by yourself is, is a very important um, part of life. But it doesn't mean that when you're in a busy world with a lot of responsibilities and a lot of activities that you can't practice. You adapt your practice. So if you have to go into a meeting um, and one which prom promises to be uh, you know, full of some deception, then you say, what is the Dhamma practice that you know, I can develop in this situation? Oh, well, right speech. Uh, learning to listen to people I don't like a little bit better, not interrupting them, not shutting them off, shutting them out, uh, not taking sides, not being judgmental. There are so many different skills um, that can be developed in any situation at all. So when you have some spare time, nothing going on, you can sit and meditate with your eyes closed. But if you think, oh, you know, I can't practice these days, there's too many things going on. No, it's, that's not at all what the practice is about. There's this constant sense, we, we can always, when you have this sense of, I'm a learner, I'm learning, I'm studying, I'm, I'm learning from experience, then um, there's, there's always something. Every day you, you, you feel you've, uh, you've made a profit, as it were. Um, I, I, I've been speaking for for quite a long time now, just so, so many things um, uh, to talk about. One thing is, um, when we talk about happiness, a big topic in, in Bhutan, of course, um, what is, what, this last point I'd like to make is that your appreciation and the happiness that you derive from life is dependent upon education. Let me give a very simple example. I mean, uh, I remember as a school child um, and going on school trips to art galleries and, and walking around art galleries. I can remember some of the most um, um, boring um, time in my life walking um, around art galleries as a 
as a schoolboy, and then um, finally someone, a uh, kind teacher, is standing in front of a great painting and explaining why this is a masterpiece. And, and just with the untutored eye, there's no way that you can just pick that up naturally, or maybe some great geniuses can, but I certainly couldn't. But then when, when this uh, teacher started to explain all the various techniques that are involved and, and, and why this particular um, color was just so, uh, so uh, incredible and, and this relationship and the different, the composition and, and, and suddenly my, my appreciation and my enjoyment and the happiness that I derived from um, going to art galleries increased exponentially. And we all start off, you know, with instincts. We're animals. We're, we, we all have, and um, we don't need any kind of education or training to enjoy a beautiful object. Um, a man sees a woman, a woman sees a man. Immediate uh, instinctive enjoyment uh, can take place. So you hear music. You don't need to uh, pop music, the most basic kind of music. You don't need any kind of real education to enjoy it. It's so. Uh, so we have these kind of instinctive pleasures um, that are just part and parcel of being human. Um, but if, uh, if we educate ourselves, then our tastes become more refined um, and more sophisticated. And certain things that we used to enjoy maybe are not so enjoyable anymore. And with uh, spiritual training and, and Buddhist practice, then um, we certain things that we used to enjoy we don't enjoy so much. But that and from the outside we thought, wow, you know, oh you're a monk, you know, you're a celibate monk, you only eat one meal a day, you live in a forest, you know, well that's uh, that must be how do you manage to live that? Whereas monks think, Oh, those people they live in cities and they're always racing around and doing this. how do they how do they bear that? You know, so very different kind of perspective. But for those looking at monks, you, you, all you see is all the things that monks don't have. But of course you can't see the, the compensations and the other kinds of happiness that take their place. And there is this kind of replacement. And, and so in any, um, in any uh, community or a society or culture where, where they say uh, gross national happiness is a goal, and then we, at the same time, we have to be educating people's um, uh, sense or those things which um, create happiness in people. You know, um, in uh, one of the key ones is the the joy of understanding, that the happiness that arises when you understand something uh, that you didn't understand before, when you can uh, express some. Skill you can you develop some ability that you didn't have before. That's not something that's that comes naturally, is it? Um, but through training, then you can find that the joy um, of doing a good job um, is more important to you than the wage. At the end, you still need a wage, of course, to look after yourself and your family. But the the joy of doing a good job um, is is far more intense than you know, the expectation of, of the money at, at the end. And so, uh, instilling or inculcating in children um, this how pleasurable it is to learn. 
and and in uh, our Buddhist schools in Thailand, you know, I, I encourage teachers when you were t- children, and when suddenly they they work something out and they say, "Oh yes, now I see," and then ask the child, you know, "How does that feel? Look, how does that feel when you understand something you didn't understand, or you gain some new knowledge? It feels great, doesn't it?" And you need to constantly be. Uh, reminding children or allowing children to notice that and then they begin to see yes that uh, pleasure and happiness doesn't come from buying things and consuming things alone but from this inner growth and understanding and uh, and how does it feel when you share something with someone compared with how you feel when you just eat it or you consume it alone look look at the feeling this isn't a spiritual teaching you should not be selfish you should be unselfish but it's saying that um, unselfishness makes you happier than selfishness does. It, it's the most rational and intelligent way of living your life. Sharing is more intelligent than keeping things for yourself. Being kind is more intelligent than being unkind. And so this is, I think, the grounds for optimism, that goodness and virtue and kindness, these are not just sort of ideals and things. We should be like that way. Um, but we can develop those qualities and they make us happy. So we need to be elevating our idea of happiness, otherwise it can just be drawn into this whole um, consumer religion and you know that's spreading throughout the world. So we want uh, more and more happiness, so we need more and more of this consumer good and more and more of that consumer good. Um, so an educating, an education not of those things that, that give us happiness, but our education of our faculty for happiness, um, I think is um, something that the Buddhist tradition um, uh, really has a great deal to offer. So thank you for your patience in listening to such a a long discourse, and um, now I think there's an opportunity for anyone who would like to ask any questions or bring anything up for discussion. very much Ajahn for very the discourse. Um, so part of your talk uh, you kind of talked about the disadvantages of elite education or just an education over education in general. Um, and so so part of my education, part of my Western upbringing um, has kind of inculcated this I guess, preoccupation with justice mm. um, in the form of eradication of poverty, mm. reduction of inequality. Um, something that's very, I think, much in uh, discussion today, especially yeah. with all the um, crises that are going on. Um, which on the one hand seems incompatible with Buddhist practice, but on the other hand seems very compatible. In, in, in what ways do you find it incompatible? Well, I guess just in the kind of clinging way, like you're clinging for certain, you have certain expectations, and mm. I guess certain emotions can arise when um, decision-makers, um, especially in the U.S., are just very, um, I guess, stubborn in their ways. So um, I'm wondering how Buddhist practice can be used in the service of um, 
a vision of justice. Yes, I think it's society. It's not really. Um, well, you know, the transmission of Buddhism to the West um, has been rather, um, in many cases, rather reductionist, and certain elements of Buddhist tradition taken out of context and um, and practiced in isolation, which has led to uh, a number of uh, misunderstandings, I think, of Buddhism. Um, the the Buddha um, taught uh, about four, what we call the four requisites. And the four requisites um, are adequate clothing, adequate nutrition, food, adequate shelter, and adequate medicine. And the Buddha said that those are like bottom line, that unless a human being um, can be free of uh, anxiety and worry about those basic physical needs for clothing, um, food, shelter, medicine, that the higher levels of the training, meditation, and all these things won't, won't ever be any effective. You're, you're not in a, uh, um, a space in which you can benefit from the higher teachings unless you have an adequate supply of basic physical uh, needs. And but um, at the same time, you know, there's this teaching of contentment and it's asking yourself, well, how much is enough? And interestingly, the last few years, um, I've seen a number of studies where they've tried to correlate um, income levels to um, happiness or perceived happiness levels. I don't know if you've, you've come across any of these. So you have this, and it really is very much in constant with the Buddhist teaching that um, if you're in very, very poor, and you still lack these basic needs, then and in, for every increase of in income of a dollar a day or whatever it might be, there is a significant increase in sense of well-being. But then you reach a you reach a point of a certain number of depending on which country you live in and so on and so forth, a certain level, and then up after that, there's almost no increase in happiness levels at all. So you know the difference between an income of I think in the state something I don't know fifty thousand dollars a year or something after that from two hundred thousand dollars a million dollars there's no perceivable increase in happiness so it's not saying everything's in the mind don't worry about the body just it's all karma no not at all and uh, one famous occasion. Um, in the Buddha's lifetime, the first thing in the morning when the Buddha awoke from his rest, he'd meditate and he'd use his psychic powers to see who within the immediate area or sometimes you know, tens of kilometers away had the ripe spiritual faculties and with just the right teaching could realize a state of enlightenment. And then the Buddha would, would set off and, and walk there in order to give a talk, perhaps to just one individual. And uh, in one case, um, he, he realized that there was a particular individual who was ready and, and ripe for spiritual um, enlightenment. And he arrived at the local town where this man lived. And uh, everybody was very excited. All the local dignitaries came out, the whole town, all the merchants, the wealthy people, and all very excited. The Buddha came all this way to give them a talk. But the one man that he really um, uh, determined to teach was a very poor um, cow herd. And it just so happened that one of his cows ran away. And so he'd spent the whole day 
chasing around the hills trying to gather up these cows. So by the time he arrived, um, the Buddha had already been sitting there for a long time. Everybody's getting a little bit restless. Um, and he, this, this poor man wanders in and he's totally exhausted. Uh, and, the Buddha, and, and the Buddha says, uh, please take this man away and give him something to eat. Um, and when he's had something to eat and he sat down, then I'll give my talk. And everybody's like, who is this guy? You know, so, <laughs> you know it's just a cowherd. Um, uh, and, and so after he'd been, uh, had some rest and refreshment, he listened and then he realized enlightenment. And so this is a, a, like a, a one incident in the Buddhist life, but it, it's, it's often used as an example that well, the Buddha's very down-to-earth recognition that if you're completely exhausted and you're hungry, you know, even with the spiritual faculties uh, primed, uh, you're not going to be able to receive the Dhamma as, as it should be received. And there are num many teachings, um, in the, particularly in the Anguttara Nikaya, which deal with these kind of um, topics. And that um, the Buddha is saying that it is, the, uh, it is the duty of the monarch or the government um, to, um, to help poor people and to create a, um, a society in which everyone has access to these basic needs for... So, um, in terms of modern um, political theory, you know, this would be very much more sort of a government um, taking responsibility to make sure that nobody falls beyond below the poverty line and, and supporting them, um, and that that's the the duty and responsibility of leaders to do that, and for for other mem more wealthy members of society to to assist. He said the society as a whole will only be healthy um, when that when that effort is being made. And um, and so one of the uh, one of my teachers, um, um, he speaking on this topic, he said that if you want to gauge the um, the success of an economy in Buddhist terms, you don't look at the number of millionaires. You look at the number of poor people lacking the four requisites. So if you're in a situation where uh, the number of millionaires is irrelevant. It's not like everyone should be on the same level. It doesn't matter. But the, the key point is that everybody in a society ideally has access to the four requisites. So in, in that sense, I would say that like social justice on that, on that level is, is key uh, to the Buddhist vision of a Buddhist society and development on the, on the, you know, the macro level as opposed to the individual level. Something that uh, is a little shocking thing I say sometimes in, in public arenas in Thailand is um, that one of the key problems we have is the assumption that this is a Buddhist nation. Now, Thailand is a very proud Buddhist nation. I say, well, what's your, on, on what, by what criteria would you say it's a Buddhist nation? And that um, it's precisely because we assume we're a Buddhist nation that we don't ever really deal with uh, many problems. Or, or you get many people saying, God, you know, how is this possible in a Buddhist country and it's like this and it's like that. Um, but I'm saying, I don't think that um, there, there's such a good case for saying that Buddhist, Thailand is a Buddhist nation. But what I would say is it has an incredible potential to be one. Um, and um, and I think that 
you know, you compare this with certain countries in, in West of America or, or Britain, it's such proud of being um, a democratic, one of the great democratic countries that all the ways in which it lacks democracy are, are often um, overlooked because there's this uh, concept, we are, a, we are a democracy. And I think in Buddhist countries, you know, the, the non-Buddhist or the un-Buddhist or the anti you know, elements are often uh, overlooked, they become blind spots because there is assumption well we're Buddhist and uh, as we're Buddhist then this is Buddhist but uh, it's not always uh, the case so um, one of the, the key and uh, sort of fundamental uh, teachings of Buddhism is you, know, you do good and you get good results and you do bad and you get bad results so I so said one, uh, one measure of a Buddhist society, we could say, a very simple measure is, do most of the people, when they look around and they see the political world, the social world, and how things are conducted in this country, do people say, well, you know, at the end of the day, yes. Uh, in Thailand, most of the people who do good get good results, and most of the people who do bad get bad results. And if, you know, majority of people say, no, I don't see that, then I say, and then I think we've got a serious problem as a Buddhist culture, Buddhist society. Thank you very much. Your teachings were very inspiring. I don't know if the mic is working, but I'm loud. Thank you very much. The teachings were very inspiring. Uh, in, in your talk, you mentioned about the place of men and women in Buddhism. Yeah. That human, human life is, has the ability to achieve enlightenment, yeah. which is true for both men and women. If that is the case, I always refer to the Vinaya vows, maybe from Theravada perspective. I may be wrong, but I read in literature stating that monks have 250 vows and nuns have 300, 300 vows, which is 50 more vows. Why is it so? What's the rationale for that? If uh, Buddhism is found on timeless truth, what, why is it so? What, what are the social underpinnings, social and cultural underpinnings that's undermining non space in, in Buddhist society or Buddhist monastic Yeah, this, this is a huge topic. Um, I'll try to just make a few pertinent comments. Firstly, the um, Buddhist monks and, and nuns. Um, the discipline uh, is not um, restricted to what we call the Patimokkha precepts, 227 for monks, 300 plus for nuns. Um, in fact, there are thousands, literally thousands of rules. And so there are what we call rules within the Patimokkha and rules outside of the Patimokkha. And many of the rules, regulations that we observe in daily life are not actually included within those 227. And a number of those 20, 227 rules uh, are no, no, no longer applied because of changes in, in um, society over the past 2,000 years. But the, the idea of these, these precepts are that they are, they are what I call pegs for mindfulness. They're training, both the inner training of mindfulness and the outer training to create a harmony and uniformity and, um, of, of view and conduct. Um, the Buddha didn't uh, set out, you know, he didn't write this um, disciplinary code. It was created ad hoc, which means that um, as a certain problem arose in the monk's community, um, 
then the monk, uh, the Buddha would call a meeting and he would say, in future, um, uh, this is not allowed. And if, if a monk was to act in this way or speak in this way, it would be considered an offense against the discipline on this, of this category or that category, this level or that level. And so the, you know, the, the 227 rules and, and so on, I mean, in fact, that there were like 227, you know, it's a little bit more complex than that. Basically, there were that many um, occasions and problems that arose, and the Buddha chose to deal with them in that way by laying down training rules. Whereas for the women, um, there were um, more occasions and more problems, and slightly more, and and certainly um, given position of, uh, of women in society in India in those days, and there were certain extra rules um, to, for instance, to try to ensure their safety um, and um, their, you know, the, the um, integrity of their training. Now the, the, the nuns order, um, but I think by most conventional standards we say was a great success. I mean, I can't think of a few other institutions that lasted a thousand years. Um, but now, you know, speaking with hindsight from 2,500 years, it's a long time since this um, order disappeared. Now, in the Theravada um, school, the, the Vinaya discipline is like, um, you know, it, it's like a legal system. And um, the, some of the most complex and precise um, uh, regulations um, are concerned with ordination procedure, because this is where you know, the whole longevity of the of the sasana is, is um, determined by the perceived legitimacy of the ordination. And so there are a great many rules about the kind of place and the boundaries and the uh, and the fine points of the procedure, all, all of which um, have to be um, uh, followed to the letter. And, and for, as with any kind of culture or any kind of legal system, for someone outside of it, you know, it can seem kind of a bit ridiculous sometimes. Um, I, I was in Sri Lanka a few, few years ago, and um, there, one of the... Um, uh, allowed areas or places in which an ordination can take place um, is on a, a floating, on an island or a floating object like a boat um, or a building which has to be completely surrounded by water. And um, in one of the strictest sects in, in Sri Lanka uh, some years ago, for some reason they suddenly Oh my, you know, not oh my God, but the Buddhist equivalent of oh my God. They they realised that um, there'd been a rope from this uh, ordination platform in the middle of an artificial lake, joining it to the shore, and that rope invalidated all the ordinations that had taken place since that rope had been there, because it's no longer separated from the land. That this this rope joins it. And so monks all over Sri Lanka who were living in their monasteries and temples got letters from the, uh, from the administrative body saying, I'm sorry, you're not really a monk because your, uh, your, your ordination was not legitimate because there was a rope joining the ordination hall to the shore. So this is a little bit of context. Now with the, the nun's ordination, um, the ordination procedure is that um, there's a two-tier 
person of a teacher, if you know if someone thinks you are wonderful and you know you have power, you could say, do this and do that, and that person would do whatever you told them. That's a huge responsibility for a teacher. And this is why I, I think that uh, when teachers take these roles and say, whatever, I'm not going to be, I'm not interested whether or not I could do this without any karmic result. I won't do it because I have respect for my tradition and my teacher and I want to create a good example and, and a, a system which is safe and, and secure for all, all people who enter into it. So uh, I, I think uh, myself I'm a little bit wary of teachers who demand absolute obedience and just to anesthetize or just to put to one side or, or normal ethical considerations because I'm special and don't think that way. And um, I, I feel for, for a healthy uh, system then uh, out of compassion then the teacher um, keeps all of the rules just like everybody else. Um, and I, I think um, uh, everybody will, will be a lot happier in, in, in that way. And it's also, um, you know, if we're looking at teachers, and it's quite all right to look at teachers with a critical eye. You know, I don't think that's bad karma. You're not being prejudiced and always aware that you only see some aspects and some things can be quite mysterious and, and uh, not obvious to a, an unenlightened eye, for sure. But if there are certain, you know, if uh, a teacher is very manipulative and using his power for material gains or encouraging you to make big donations or makes a special fuss of rich people rather than uh, ordinary people and uh, he enjoys all the luxuries and things, then we don't have to say, therefore, he's not enlightened. But we say, I don't agree with that. I don't think teachers should do that. I think that's all right. You see, where is the bad camera? You say, you can't be enlightened, really, if you're like that. You're just so materialistic. It's not, you know, we're not drawing that conclusion because we don't know. We don't have that vision. But we can say, I really don't feel comfortable when teachers uh, buy big cars. And I know a Thai monk who has his own airplane, you know. Um, and, and he says he, it's so that he can visit all his students around the world and can and visit them and give them teachings much more conveniently. And so there's always some good reason, but you know I don't find that inspiring at all. And it's the job of a monk also um, recognizing that we all have this tendency to create us and them. You know, this is basic human uh, instinct, isn't it? Um, and to um, not say you're my student and you shouldn't go somewhere else and and in fact the Buddha said that this is a fault of a teacher who, if he encourages this kind of uh, uh, that for students only to have faith in them and to be very sort of stingy and afraid if or maybe this my student goes off and visits that teacher and then uh, leaves me forever and, and um, so this is where the teachers also is learning, you know, not to identify with those kinds of, of feelings. So uh, recognizing them as, as faults and and weaknesses. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at teachers, particularly, what's the teacher's relationship to money? What's the teacher's relationship to power? What's the teacher's relationship to women? Uh, what's the teacher's relationship to other? 
uh, is it very critical and always putting down other other teachers and only I am teaching the true profound Dhamma. He's he's quite a good teacher, but he doesn't really understand, and that's something to be wary of. And also, I, I think um, a real a really good um, uh, sign is the relationship of the teacher to his own teacher or her own teacher. You know, if if you're always um, saying, really, you know, I, I've gone far beyond my own teacher, and, and really it's, and, and, and we everything very, very self-centered, then I think that's something to be wary of. So I, I was talking about faith, and it's perfectly all right to use your common sense and intelligence and critical faculties to, um, to in your relationship with spiritual teachers. I think it's good for spiritual teachers um, that they have that kind of feedback from the lay, that's in fact one of the responsibilities of the lay Buddhists to be giving feedback to authority figures. Um, just as in a democratic system, it's the it's the job of, of ordinary people to be giving feedback to the politicians and the leaders. It's the same thing in the, in, but at the same time, that balance always maintaining that sense of respect and gratitude for for what we receive from teachers. So not being very uh, adversarial and, and critical. But um, being willing to say, I really don't understand this. Can you explain? And 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 you know, what? Why do you do this? Why why do you not do this? I only take. I only thank you for the word of Mr. Bishop. So I'd like to ask a question. Why is there a collision between religion and modernization? And we tend to be lost to it. Sorry, I have to speak a bit slower, a bit louder. Why is there a collision between religion and modernization? And why, why do we tend to be lost towards it? The, the connection between religion and... Why is, there collision, why is there a collision between religion and modernization? Religion and modernization. And we tend to be lost towards it. Mm -hmm. It's collision between religion and modernization, and why are we lost between the two? Why are we lost between the two? Well, um, uh, as I understand, the Buddhist teaching is, you know, the understanding of the way things are, and uh, the ability to uh, recognize um, those things which are constructive and useful, and those things which are destructive and harmful. And so when we have this, uh, in Buddhist religious terms, when we have this um, insight, then we have some criteria for deciding what kind, it's not just one kind of modernization, it's what kind of modernization do we want, and one which is compatible with our values and our culture. But I think that if we go back, you know, the beginning of the era of, of globalization, so-called, you know, there was so much you know, optimism, you know, that the global village, you know, all, all boundaries are going to be dissolved and we're all going to be all sort of harmonious and, um, and it never worked. And in fact, in many cases, it was exact opposite. And you found that um, increase we call balkanization and people attaching very strongly to their ethnicity and big countries breaking up into smaller countries and breaking up more and more and everybody wanting to identify with one particular kind of group or identifying with a religion 
or a, um, a, uh, yeah, so the region's a big one, obviously. And I think that my analysis of that is that the the rate, like world is always changing, but the rate of change over the past few years has increased incredibly. And for most people, it's very, very unsettling. All the things that they're taking for granted, uh, now suddenly they're unstable. It's like an earthquake, you know, even the ground beneath your feet is shaking. That's it. uh, it's, it's very uh, disturbing. And uh, the family system is breaking up and, uh, eat, and livelihoods are no longer guaranteed. And it's like everything's up for grabs. There's nothing solid anymore. And when people feel that their lives are threatened and not solid and not dependable anymore, then the, the usual response is you want to hold on to something very tight and, and just, this is, this is safe now. And, and, and belief in a religious dogma is one of the favorite um, refuges for the disturbed, unsettled, insecure person. Um, otherwise, identification with my group, who are, you know, my ethnic group, my country, or even my football team, or whatever. But people want to have something. They say, "This is this is it. This is what I can rely on. This doesn't change. Everything else may change, but this is stable. This is firm." And and I think this is um, you know part of the the reason for the the growth of the fundamentalist movements um, throughout the world and this uh, increased attachment to ethnicity and, and and so on and so forth. It's a reaction to the the rapid uh, unpredict- unpredictable changes in the world. This mic is working, but I would like to. Maybe it's working now. Can I'm sure I'm loud enough. Uh, I would like to thank you for the talk. Uh, it was very inspirational. Uh, you mentioned that uh, people do offer make offering to the deities uh, or to gain unfair advantage, and you have construed that as a corruption. But on the uh, on the other. On the other hand, what I think, and for which I would like to have your views, mm. is that people actually fear that if they do not offer to the deities, they may fall sick, mm. something might happen to the families. Uh, so with that fear, actually, they offer it. Yes, that's a good point. I mean, I was just trying to be a little bit provocative in, uh, in what I was saying. But um, yes, I, I recognize that. But that. Yeah, that's the, um, you know, the use of, uh, the use of fear or the role of fear in manipulating people is, uh, you know, is a really important topic, isn't it, that we need to address in our societies. And, and, and we know that in, in most countries that if, if the government is very, uh, threatened or insecure or criticized, the, the easiest way out of that is to create an external enemy um, and say, you should support the country if you're not, you're not patriotic and if we don't all pull together and then the enemy will come and destroy us and destroy our world and our religion. And, and so as human beings, we're, you know, we're very prone to uh, manipulation through fear. Um, and to 
and to recognize how, how that works in all the different areas of our life. And I, I really sympathize with someone, you know, because you don't have, if you have a child that's ill, you know, and, and you fear if you don't perform a certain ritual, that child may die. You don't have, you can't say, you don't have a second chance, you know. Uh, if you say, no, I, I won't do it, and the child does die, then, you know, you, you feel awful all of your life, wouldn't you? So, you know, this is something that you kind of recognize. But um, at the same time, you know, I think one of the, um, one of the services that academic institutions can perform in society is to be is to be gathering statistics. Now, often this, all these kinds of discussions about this uh, end up into whether or not you believe it and and or not. And someone who doesn't believe is very skeptical, and somebody who does believe that you don't know and you're blind. But um, there, there is a, uh, an example, example. There is a um, a monastery in Thailand which is very powerful, and very popular these days. And uh, it's very controversial because, um, from my point of view, it's a serious distortion of the Buddhist teachings. For instance, the concept of merit, they've made into like merchandise, so basically you can buy merit. And the idea is if you make an offering of a thousand baht, you make so much merit, if you make ten thousand baht, you make ten thousand units of merit. And so it's, it's applying various kinds of management techniques and pyramid selling and all these kinds of things to to propagation of Buddhism. And so it's basically telling people, if you offer so much money, everything's going to be wonderful in your life and you're going to be successful in this life and in future lives. And many, this is incredibly popular in Thailand. So now you probably know we have this terrible flooding in Thailand. So I'm saying, why don't uh, one of the universities send people out and do a statistical study of uh, how many of the houses of people who are devotees of this monastery and those who are not and to compare the flooding levels and if we find that there's less flooding in the, in the houses of people who offer huge sums of money to this monastery we can say yeah there's something in that um, but if, if there's not and, they get, if they're, they're, and their flooding of the house is more a function of how high above sea level their house is, and you know, um, as I, su I suspect it may well be, then when these kinds of um, discussions come up, you know, rather than just one side against the other side, you can say, well, well why is that the case? You know, if you're, if you're teaching religion on this level, you know, that you make, you offer a lot of money, and then you're going to become rich, then you show, show me, is this true? Because what you happen if you have a hundred people, you're always going to have some who, you know, who are successful, and everybody talks about them, and they don't talk about all the others that, that weren't successful. And um, in Thailand, we have this thing where um, uh, custom for, for many people, they go to listen to uh, Dhamma talks and discourses in order to get lottery numbers. Um, and uh, some monks, they have this power, they can actually accurately predict lottery numbers, but it's not, you know, it's not allowed to do it. But unfortunately, many people believe that all meditation monks can do this. Um, and so when they, and they think that because meditation monks are very compassionate, the way that they'll do this is like smuggle these numbers into their Dhamma discourses. 
So you have people going to listen and not absorbing the Dhamma, they're also waiting. And so somebody says, and the, and the monk says, and the four noble truths, four, four noble truths, <laughs> and four paths, you know. So, but, you know, and, and so if you have a hundred people, you know, and they're all getting the numbers, it's quite likely one out of that hundred will, will win the lottery. You know, this, this is an underground lottery where you just play three numbers, so it's quite easy to win. And, and so I've had people, ah, oh, Janjai Sorrow, thank you so much, you know, you're, you're, that's two weeks in a row I've listened to your Dhamma course and I, you know, I won the lottery, thank you so much, you know. Um, so it's the idea, you know, if you have enough people, you're always going to have a small percentage of people that you can say, yeah, look there, Ajahn Jai Sarag gives lottery numbers in his Dhamma talks, because so-and-so, he won so much money, did you hear? He's, he's bought himself a new car or something. Oh, okay, tonight is looking better. Rajan, I have a personal dilemma. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know where to begin also. <laughs> but the thing is, I'll say, uh, we have, as, as Buddhists, and as Buddhists, of course, we've been brought up to be very hardworking, you know, and like you were saying, we put in a lot of effort. And uh, over the course of, I mean, not just my lifetime, but my parents' lifetime also, I think... Uh, you know, and also, of course, with the developmental activities in Bhutan, we've reached, I think, uh, positions of, uh, like you were saying, we have lots of disposable income. In mm. fact, it was very interesting that you should mention about the bag, because I looked at the and I said, I'm carrying an expensive bag myself, I'm feeling very guilty about it, you know. But the thing is, yeah, we've reached, uh, I mean, for my, I speak for myself, you know, because it's a personal dilemma. We've reached the stage, uh, I would say, because of good fortune also, and a lot has to do with uh, hard work, you know. And suddenly we find ourselves in a position of, uh, yeah, a little higher status, you know, more economic, uh, like, you know, in a better economic position than a lot of uh, people in the country. In fact, few members of the audience were also mentioning about the inequalities. And uh, I find myself unfortunate to be on the other side, you know. And... Uh, it's a personal dilemma because on the one hand you work hard and you've been, you've been brought up to work hard and um, success is supposed to be a reward of that hard work and we find ourselves in that position now and then suddenly we have, it's almost like the whole world or the whole, especially here in Bhutan, whole society is pointing fingers at you and saying, oh my God, we are the ones, you know, who have too much. And um, it's, uh, in a way we feel, I, I feel that I'm being marginalized, you know, mm. because I think, uh, as far as possible, we try to do the Buddhist thing. You know, we give donations where it's due, we try to help. And uh, till now, we've kept very quiet about it. But I think it's, I mean, I, I, I'm being very open here because I want people to know that uh, we do use our money wisely. You know, we do give donations, we do help the poor, and uh, to monasteries, to the poor people. Uh, we have, uh, we've started charitable organizations. and. Uh, it's, it's, it's a personal dilemma for me because on the one hand, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a practicing Buddhist. Mm. And yes, I do enjoy carrying my Gucci bags and mm. wearing my Gucci shoes. And, uh, but on the other hand, yeah, this is, this, this is you know, it, it's very confusing. And I was just wondering if uh, you could throw some uh, uh, light, yeah. you know? Um, the, the, the Buddha... Um, I, I'm not aware of teachings when the, um, the Buddha criticized wealth per se. Um, the Buddha said that 
and the acquisition of wealth is a legitimate uh, part of a, a lay Buddhist life, but that there are certain um, um, certain boundaries uh, that the wealth should be gained through honest effort and not through taking advantage of, of others and cheating and, and uh, harming. Um, and secondly, that the wealth that has been attained uh, or gathered should be used well. Some of the strongest um, language we find in the Pali Canon uh, used by the Buddha is criticism of misers. People who accumulate wealth and never put it to good use. Um, and so the Buddha said that um, once you have accumulated a certain amount of wealth, uh, you should try to make yourself happy and you should uh, try to uh, help and increase the happiness of your family members and people in society at large and also to support the religion that you profess. And then the last um, practice is uh, not to be a slave of your wealth and not to be attached to your wealth. And that's the most difficult one, of course. So, you know, often we say, my car, my this, my that, but actually they, they possess us rather than we possess them. So, given those, the Buddha didn't uh, criticize that at all. And, in fact, you know, with wealth, the opportunity to do good and, and to help others is magnified. And, um, and, and someone who uses their wealth well is, uh, is praised by the Buddha. An example is Anattapindaka. Anattapindaka was one of the great lay disciples and every morning he would uh, go to the monastery and offer food to the monks and then he would go home and he would open his house to all the poor people and the beggars. So these were his two acts of generosity every day, one to support the Sangha and one to help others. But um, at the same time, you know, the Buddha recognized that it's all right to enjoy yourself. And you know, you like nice clothes or nice handbag, that's all right. That's not evil or bad or anything to feel guilty about. Um, as long as you know, you're not going into debt or you know that um, you don't have enough money to pay the bills or, or anything like that, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, as, as long as it's not just completely running your, running your life. And I don't think there's... Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, if you have a, a, a society in which um, people want to be boasting about their wealth, then that, that's something, obviously, and sort of rubbing it in other people's faces, like, I've got this and you haven't, then that's not very good for society. But I think that uh, when you have a culture in which the wealthy people try to be modest, and, and particularly in their visible displays of wealth, then, then I think that, that that's, that's workable. And uh, I mean, in, in England, for all of the iniquities and of the, uh, the British class system, um, the one thing that I like about it, or at least I like about it, is the kind of the sloppiest and worst dressed people in England are the aristocrats, you know. And, and that was just kind of like one aspect of British culture I really liked, you know. When, when you're really wealthy, you don't have to show off anymore, you can just be a slob. <laughs> um, as far as how you perceive this, this is come back to the basic Buddhist teaching of the eight worldly winds and praise and blame. Um, and this is something that, as Buddhists, we really have to study and learn about because it's a major 
cause of, of um, pain and stress in our lives. One of the key uh, recollections here is, if you look in the Pali Canon, there's not one of the great enlightened beings that wasn't unfairly criticized at some time or another. The Buddha was a subject of the most awful slander at some times. There's a Venerable Sariputta, Mahamogalana, all the greatest teachers, they were misunderstood, misinterpreted, um, and, uh, and their reputation was, was you know, um, uh, destroyed, but um, temporarily at least. And so I think that, that helps, you know, that no matter who you are, you know, I had this idea myself, and you know, you can hold two ideas at the same time. I know this teaching that there's always some praise, but I had this idea if I could just be an impeccable monk and keep all the rules impeccably and just do everything exactly the way my teacher taught, then um, people, how could people criticize me? Um, and then I found, yeah, it wasn't the way things work. I mean, if you do good things, okay, what's going to happen in any kind of community? One, um, people are going to praise you too much um, because they want something for themselves. They're, so they're going to flatter you. If you do good things or you're successful, you're going to have people flattering you can't trust. You're going to have people that praise you appropriately through a general recognition um, of, of the goodness and things you've done. There's no group of people who are going to be completely indifferent, they couldn't care less. There are other people who are going to say, you're not really good, you're just putting on a big show to impress other people and actually you, you've got some uh, secret agenda. And there are other people who are going to be jealous. And, and um, so this, whatever kind of community you are, you're going to meet those five kinds of people. And there's no way you can manipulate conditions or live your life in such a way that you're going to be free of that. And sometimes you, uh, you're praised for things that you know, are not so praiseworthy. And the other side of the coin is you're criticized for things that are worthy of praise. Um, so when we're talking about uh, the deities and uh, the devas and so on, one of the deva reflections, which I think is very helpful, is um, the Buddha says, you live a life in such a way that you, you are praised by the devas, praised by the deities. But if you think you're going to be praised by everyone in society, uh, you know, that's never going to happen. But then if you think, when the way that I live my life, the standards that I have and so on, um, if my spiritual teacher knew every, and, and he, uh, would he criticize me or not? Uh, not the sort of prejudiced man in the street or someone who's, you know, always willing to look on the black side, but you think, the person who you most respect and you most trust and the person who has the most integrity, if they knew the truth, what would their reaction be? And if you can tell yourself, yes, my teacher, he would praise me for this, he would understand, and he would, uh, and for my uh, occasional lapses and weaknesses and indulgences, he would also feel compassion for me. You don't, don't set the standard too high, you know, because uh, I think most religious traditions, and one of the things that's kind of toxic about them is this, you should be like this, and you shouldn't be like that. And then people just feel guilty all the time because uh, I can't be the kind of person my religion tells me I should be, you know. I, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I should be so much better than this. I should be so much kinder. I shouldn't get angry. I shouldn't lose. Why shouldn't you? I mean, if the causes and conditions are still there, it's going to happen. So 
Um, myself, uh, you know, I believe that guilt is a culturally conditioned um, mental state. It's not a natural state. And in fact, um, in you, you may have heard the story. Um, uh, I, I've experienced it myself once with a senior Thai teacher, but one of the visits with the Dalai Lama um, to America, meeting many American Buddhists, and many American Buddhists uh, are from Jewish backgrounds. And so the, um, uh, the big question would come up, uh, Your Holiness, how do we deal with guilt? And, and uh, this is a crippling sense of guilt all the time. And, and His Holiness didn't understand the question. You know, what, what do you mean? And, and so he had to really try to explain in a way that, you know, what, what, what you mean by guilt. And in the end, the Dalai Lama started to cry. He said, I just, that's so sad that all these people in these countries feel like that, you know. <laughs> and, and I think, um, you know, if you're brought up in a Western cultural condition, you know, you feel guilt is like a sort of a law of nature. It's just something that you're born with and saddled with forever. And I think it's very um, liberating to come to Asian culture, Buddhist culture, where we don't have that concept of guilt. But what we do have is concept of shame. And shame is very different, because shame is, is, is a wisdom-based um, emotion. So the way that shame is, is explained in Buddhist senses, we, we reflect, what is our role and our responsibility um, as a human being, to our fellow human beings, as a mother, as a child, as a sister or a brother, as an employer, so all those conventional roles that we play, what, how, how do we feel would be the appropriate and the, and the best way to, to behave? Uh, and that's a recollection in your mind, a perception in your mind. And then when you're about to act or speak in such a way that conflicts with that, there is a sense of conflict between those ideals that you've adopted and how you're about to behave. And so there's a, the cognitive aspect is a sense these things don't mix, they're incompatible. And as a result of that recognition, intellectual recognition, there's a feeling. And that feeling is, is shame. So there's a shrinking away from a certain, that, that's shameful, that's, I'm betraying my, my, um, my principles. Um, and the... The difference with guilt, and the guilt is the Buddha included in the list of defilements. Shame is considered a very positive emotion, one that is a foundation for spiritual growth. What guilt is, I did something bad, I am a bad person. I am bad because I did this. So it's, it's me and mine, and, and you're taking ownership of this. It's not a recognition of the, of the action of the, uh, of the uh, negative emotion as something which needs to be abandoned, but it's, a, it's a, a judgment on me as a person. And so um, this, the Buddha said, is, is a mental habit and a defilement that we need to learn to let go of. Uh, so seeing that distinction between uh, this intelligent shame and guilt is a very important one. But the extent to which many of the educated class of people in Asia now are going to the West and, and being uh, educated in Western education, then this, this guilt toxin is just spreading throughout 
um, Asia at the moment, and uh, you know, and just and people don't really uh, even see it and recognize it very clearly. Thank you very much for your wonderful deliberations. Well, uh, I have a skeptic uh, in my mind all the time. Basically, uh, I'm also a Buddhist, but uh, okay, uh, basically, all religions uh, show the path of righteousness. 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 Righteous. Yes. To be right, to yeah. practice right. Well, uh, all religions show us to do good. And Buddhism also, as for Buddha, it basically tells us to practice right speech, right efforts, right mindfulness, right thoughts and actions. So uh, these are pragmatic. Basically, what I want to say is on the practical side of things. These are practical. Like we do good efforts, uh, like we uh, project good uh, actions, it will accumulate good merits. And good merit, accumulation of good merits will lead us to uh, good and healthy living. So, on the other side of the coin, like, as I'm also doubtful about, is uh, some people say that religion is symbolic. Everything, uh, sometimes it becomes ritualistic, rather than, rather than being practical. And these, uh, the world now is very pragmatic and practical because it's a scientific world. We, we believe and we trust in what we see and what we can touch and feel. But uh, basically, in Buddhism also, we have lots of rituals in order to purify ourselves, in order to defile ourselves, and in order to carry on our lives uh, with good thoughts. Like uh, many scriptures, basically, in Buddhism, many scriptures basically relate about signs of mankind. It also tells about uh, the signs of uh, development of aeroplanes, vehicles. Basically, in the scriptures, everything is there in Buddhism. But yet, it is so, like some people say that it is so ritualistic and it is symbolic. I also, in my personal experiences, uh, met some of the people who did so. so I would like to ask the Venerable that uh, to do uh, to get some safe from your side okay. to fill up the gaps in the doubts which I had just shared. Um, first of all, in terms of, uh, of symbols and, and conventions and rituals, I think that um, part of our genius as human beings is that we can create um, concepts and symbols and systems of abstract thought um, for various purposes. And so the, you know, the fact that something is in symbolic, um, it depends on for, for what purpose. Um, the, the, I, and a couple of um, talks, uh, since I arrived in Bhutan, I've been talking about um, Buddha images and, and uh, religious symbols. And uh, being out that 
Using Buddhist education symbol, our goals are wisdom and compassion and purity and liberation. All these things are abstract. And even for a, like a religious professional, let's say like a monk, you know, these are quite difficult to, to, uh, to, to think about and to reflect upon. And so for a long time now, the, the great masters uh, you know, came up with this idea of creating physical objects uh, which can be seen and which are um, tangible, which can remind us and, and can inspire us with those abstract ideas. So if you go to the West, one quite shocking thing, even for me, is you can go into houses and people have Buddha heads on their mantelpiece or just as decorations in their house. And if you are, if you are for myself, because I haven't lived in England since I was a schoolboy, you know, I, I, I see, I, I find shocking, you know, even though I understand why. But if you ask people, you're not a Buddhist, you know, uh, and why do you have a Buddha head on, uh, on your wall? And, it's, and some people say, I don't know, all I know is if I look at it, I just feel calm, I just feel good. It's, it's so nice when I get really stressed and anxious, I just look at my Buddha head and I feel good, you know. So this, I think, for someone who's not even a Buddhist, how much more so for a Buddhist? So these are things that um, can be used in a very creative way. And um, religious traditions um, have long ago come across this idea, what today we call multimedia. And, and Bhutanese Buddhism is great on multimedia, you know, with the sounds of the horns and the, and the colors, and the, it's fantastic. You know, you've, someone coming particularly from another culture, it's just wonderful. But it, in those kinds of symbolic rituals and representations, their, their role is not to provide some intellectual understanding of Buddhist doctrine. It is to stimulate certain emotions. Um, to create religious emotion. It's the same like the cathedrals in Europe. There's the, the shape of the buildings, the raising, pointing up high, and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the stained glass, and the, the statues, and the, and the incense. All these things are there to create a certain kind of feeling which they feel is conducive towards spiritual growth in, 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 those, in that sense. So that's something about the role of... of so now, if someone says, all you're doing is bowing down to a, you know, a stone image or a, you know, a, um, a craven image or a god or something, then we say, well, no, we're, we're, we're bowing to, we're, we're prostrating before that which expresses our highest ideals in life. Uh, a comparison I was made, let's say you're watching the television, and somebody said, how can you be so foolish and superstition? There's nobody in that box. There's nobody really there. There's nobody really speaking. All you're looking at is a pattern of colors and sounds coming out of a box. And you say, well, no, I'm not. I'm not. This is a representation of something. And I can learn and I can derive enjoyment from a television. I don't have to believe that it's actually somebody, all those things are happening inside that little box on the wall. And it's the same with, with uh, spiritual symbols. So let me talk about science. Okay, I think um, science has managed to promote itself very, very well. And we have this very exalted idea of science. But I think that as science actually practiced, 
it doesn't really quite live up to its billing. Um, I, there's so many examples of this. Um, one uh, one uh, thing I read about some years ago, um, you know, science, scientific uh, community um, uh, develop, depends very much on peer review, and so you have these very prestigious um, publications. And if you want your your scientific research to be recognised in the larger scientific, you need to be published in these um, in these journals, Nature and and so on. So these scientists took. Um, a number of papers published in the most prestigious scientific journals, uh, written by Nobel um, uh, laureates and so on, and then reprinted them and then changed the name. And it was, um, uh, it'd be things like sort of Mr. Karma from Punaka Technical College or something like this, you know, um, and uh, for, from, from, Places, obscure places in Africa, and all, and resubmitted these same, the very same texts, and in almost all cases they were rejected, even though the content was the same. And just a very simple point that the, the name of the institution and the name of the person has a much larger role uh, to play than, than is uh, generally uh, recognized. Now, uh, so a little subject closer to home, rebirth. You can say, oh, you know, I like this, a lot of the Buddhist teachings, you know, very practical, pragmatic, but this, I can't get this rebirth thing, you know, I'm a scientist, and it's not scientific. Uh, but I would, I would contend that the evidence in support of rebirth is far more telling than that which supports many scientific theories that are accepted in the wider scientific community. So why is rebirth considered uh, not scientific? Now my, my theory here is that uh, the scientific community is, is there are two main power groups. One are theists, people who believe in eternal heaven and eternal hell after death, and the others are the materialists who believe that after we die there's nothing. And so if you're going to um, promote uh, a scientific theory um, it has to have the acceptance of at least one of those big power groups. And if you have a scientific theory of rebirth, the theists won't accept it because it conflicts with their religious ideas, and the materialists won't, won't, won't accept it because it, it uh, counters their own ideas about what happens after death. So it has no champions. Um, and so it's considered unscientific. And if, if you look at um, history of science, um, then at each juncture in science you have a certain amount of information there which is um, conditioned by the technology you have. The more technology, the more information, the more data that you have. But it's not the case that given a body of data there is only one hypothesis which fits the data exactly. You know, over and over again you, you can have many different hypotheses, conflicting hypotheses, but which perfectly explain the data that you have. So the really interesting thing is, if you look at the history of sciences, why is, in each uh, period, is this particular hypothesis accepted and the other one is rejected? On what grounds? And over and over again you find that the grounds are unscientific. They're cultural, religious, social, uh, criteria. 
So the idea there is this abstract thing called science, you know, that is separate from scientists and people's failings and jealousies and prejudices and uh, and so on uh, is is not the case. And uh, if you look, you know, at the series, some the number of the greatest scientists in the world that falsified their data because they were absolutely convinced that their theory was true, including people like Einstein. Um, they, you know, the, the, the evidence is there. Um, and, and Einstein said at one point, you know, the idea that uh, the scientific um, method is data, hypothesis, testing of hypothesis, and then proving of, of theories and so on. He says, no, the, the, the theory comes first, and then you try to make the data fit the, the theory. Um, um, some of the greatest scientific theories have, have come through visions and through meditative states. Um, sometimes, uh, with uh, who, who is it? This uh, Tesla. You know, a man called Tesla. I think he's Serbian or Croatian, and uh, closely associated with with uh, Edison. For, he worked for Edison for some time, and uh, his greatest discovery of uh, alternate current. Um, uh, electricity uh, came to him when he was watching the sunset. He was just sort of relaxed, not in his laboratory, and looking out, and he just suddenly had this vision, and he ran off to his laboratory and wrote it down. And So there was this kind of irrational uh, basis um, for, you know, some most important sign. And then if you look at um, Edison's relationship to Tesla, Edison couldn't bear uh, the fact that Tesla had come up with a superior kind of uh, electricity, and he did. And he did everything he could in his power to blacken the reputation of Tesla in the sense of giving talks and lectures and denigrating him in publications, the most horrible, nasty kind of character assassination from one of the greatest scientists the world has ever seen um, because he was a, a rival and he was eclipsing him in a very important area of his life. There's just a few examples that, you know, when we talk about science, remember, this is kind of just messy business of ordinary human beings, and it's not this kind of uh, abstract, pristine kind of entity. We're in a scientific age. Are we really? I, I'm not so sure, you know. Yes, um, well, or faith is a religious emotion, um, and the, um, let, let me say that in the 19th century, late 19th century, the revival of Buddhism in Sri Lanka following uh, hundreds of years of colonial um, influence and the, the, the Portuguese, um, you know, tried to wipe out Buddhism. The Dutch were much better. The British were a bit more subtle about it, but, but Buddhism was um, oppressed for, for a long time. Revival was really based uh, upon the work of a number of Westerners, particularly Colonel Alcott from, from America, Theosophist. And in the revival of, of, of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, the sort of the interpretation of Buddhism uh, was scientific Buddhism. And the way that they took on the missionaries was say Christianity is this kind of irrational, um, 
blind belief, and we're Buddhists, we're rational, we don't have all that kind of stuff. So they just chose all the sort of the aspects of Buddhism that were most in, uh, in line with their idea of what scientific meant. And this became a, like a, a current within the Buddhist tradition. Um, and when I was first practicing Buddhism, you know, a number of people who came to become monks were of this kind of scientific Buddhist tradition. You know, we don't want all that kind of mystical stuff. We like this really uh, pragmatic uh, approach. And we don't like chanting. We don't like devotional practices. And we don't like ritual. That's, that's not necessary. You know, let's just get down to the real essence. Let's talk about um, emptiness and, and uh, conditioned genesis and all these kind of really meaty kind of topics, you know. Um, but what, what I found was that uh, it becomes very kind of dry and, and, and um, desiccated kind of approach to spiritual development. Um, and I don't think it works very well. Um, whereas the, the Buddhist training is one which is a cultivation of emotion as well. It's not denigrated, you shouldn't have emotions, emotions are bad, emotions make you act badly and, and do stupid things. They're saying that these emotions need to be cultivated. And certain emotions are based upon a misperception, misunderstanding of the way things are. And the more, the more you understand, the clearer you see those, those emotions um, start to fall away. But other emotions uh, become stronger. And this faith, faith emotion um, becomes stronger and stronger through that effort to verify the the objects of faith. Like I was saying, basic, to repeat, the basic faith here is you can abandon the unwholesome, you can develop virtuous qualities, you can purify your mind, you can liberate yourself. So you are, um, day by day, you're putting that to the test. And as you find, yes, you are abandoning, you are developing, you are purifying, then your faith becomes stronger and stronger. So you send every you're constantly saying, yes, oh, that's so true, the Buddha said that, now I understand what that means. So the more that you practice and the more that you try to, um, uh, to train your mind and your life according to those principles, the more confidence and the more faith you have in it. And, it's very, and it gives rise to a great deal of, of joy in life. Um, the other, the, 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 the main um, positive emotions which are cultivated in Buddhist training uh, are a group of four uh, virtues and are loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And the fourth one I think is the most um, unexpected, the idea that equanimity is an emotion and is the most sublime emotion. We tend to confuse equanimity with indifference. But this uh, equanimity um, of the Buddha, and this is a, a good case in which Buddha images um, are express this teaching, is the Buddha is so calm and so uh, equanimous that his eyes are open. He's not equanimous because he's turning his back on human suffering. He's aware of human suffering and yet he's so solid and, and he's right there and he's equanimous because he understands that things are this way because of all the causes and conditions that have led to them. So um, for, a, for a balanced training, there has to be that intellectual appreciation of Buddhist teachings. There is a cultivation of the positive emotions, faith and joy in the teachings, and, and this um, uh, loving kindness and compassion, and the ability to appreciate and to 
to to derive happiness from the goodness and the um, and the successes of others, um, and finally this stability of mind, this equipoise or equanimity. Thank you for the talk that we are fortunate to have this morning. Uh, ever since I started uh, studying uh, Buddhist uh, philosophy, I could really revere and understand the most. Hmm. But I'm stuck in many places and I have listed down. I just want to bring out the first one. Yeah. The first one uh, in uh, uh, Dhammapada. Uh, I may not be able to correctly uh, uh, read the way it is, but uh, in one place uh, it is uh, uh, said that self is the goal of self. Now when I read that one and uh, when I go back to the, the core philosophy of uh, uh, not self, anatta, uh, it's directly, uh, you know, uh, not been able to comprehend uh, between this uh, uh, philosophy of anatta, mm. the anitya, uh, anatta, and uh, dukkha, these three four uh, philosophies. So, uh, what is said there, the, the self is the goal of self. What else could be the goal? Yes, uh, go further yeah. than that. Uh, uh, so, I'm uh, stuck there in understanding. So is that self, uh, what is there, the, the self is the goal, the first, the self, is, uh, is it the Buddha nature that uh, inherently present in us? Uh, so I'm stuck there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, the, the Dhammapada verse says like the, the self is the, the refuge of self. Um, and the um, the self relies upon the self. There are a number of teachings um, in that vein in the Pali Canon, and and the and the way to understand them um, is that um, the Buddha said that um, we uh, we need to adapt our language according to circumstance, and that um, we we need to function in the world. Um, we need to be able to use conventional terms. And as I said just now, the ability to create conventions is one of our greatest achievements as human beings. But the, the only problem is that we tend to um, uh, identify with or to give too much um, importance to or we forget that the convention is a convention. Okay? But when you recognize a convention as a convention, then you're free to use that convention um, uh, effectively. So, you know, if we were going to um, communicate on the highest level, let's say you, you as a, uh, a human being, ultimately as a conditioned stream of mental and physical phenomena, okay? Now we can say this is a, like an expression of the highest philosophy. Um, but if I wanted you to, to come over here, you know, I say, Hey, you, conditioned stream of physical and mental phenomena, come over here, you know. It wouldn't work, would it? You'd think I was a bit crazy. And then uh, all the other conditioned stream of mental and physical, is he talking to me? You know, because we're all. Uh, but it makes much, it just makes sense to have names and identities. 
Um, if we if we have um, like a river, the uh, uh, Timpu River, for instance, you know, is there such a thing as a Timpu River? What what exactly is the Timpu River? If you say, well, you look at that's the Timpu River. Well, you know, before very long, that water is going to fl be flowing into the sea, so it's no longer the Timpu River. So where exactly is it? So does that mean there's no Timpu River? Well, of course there is. There's a conventional designation of that body of water flowing along as Timpu River. But there's no fixed entity called Timpu River. There is the water and the stones and the fish and the all together, just for the sake of convenience and communication, we refer to as Timpu River. And it's the same with, with our, our self. And so we can use this word self in certain circumstances, in a conventional sense. Yeah. So, you know, uh, if um, you know, we say, look, you're on your own now, uh, you've got to do this yourself. You know, does that mean if we're a Buddhist we can't say that? No, because we're speaking on the conventional plane. You know, right now, this work, you know, I can't do this for you, it's your, it's your job. You know, you're, you're being paid to do this, you do it yourself. I'm not the boss, I'm not going to do that. It's your job, do it yourself. So we can use the word self, but without sort of betraying underlying Buddhist teachings and Buddhist philosophy, because we know we're using it in a particular uh, constrained uh, way that we both understand. Uh, and so the, the Buddha, you know, in, the, in his discourses, uh, spoke on many different levels and planes depending on who he was talking to. And the Dhammapada is a miscellany of verses gleaned from many different places, many different discourses to many different people over 45 years. And so in some verses he'll be speaking on a very high plane and some verses on the conventional plane. So when he says the self is the refuge of the self, it means if you've got greed uh, in your heart, um, Nobody's going to take it away from you. No guru can take the greed out of your heart. No deity, no prayer can do it. has to be uh, dealt with by yourself and your own efforts. So that's not denying principles of anicjang and dukkang and anatta and sunyata and all these things. But it's a, it's a one way of talking um, that we both understand what, what we mean by that. Uh, I just want one, one, just one, one more point about this. That, um, uh, one, uh, one Buddhist author made a very good point, he's saying the extent to which we are deceived by our language and the conventions of language um, into assuming that there are uh, independent entities themselves. Uh, because like English language is basically you have a, a subject, a verb and an object. Um, and so we perceive the world through that framework. And so he had uh, a wonderful example, he said Let's take the simple phrase, it is raining. And he said, what does the word it refer to? What is the it which is raining? There isn't something, uh, a subject which is raining, there's just rain. Yeah. And so the, the Buddha is saying, who is the owner of the body? Who is the owner of feelings? Who is the owner of perceptions and thoughts and emotions and sense consciousness? But say, if you look, very clearly, you can't find this owner. There's just a stream, the flow of phenomena. And just as there's no it which is raining, there is no me, uh, which is this body or these feelings. 
there's just this this flow but but that's a level uh kind of profound level in day, in just normal discourse we can't be talking on that level all the time so we use these more conventional terms 